Are you ready to go ahead and just jump into things, or do you have anything that we need to talk about as far as like outline or anything goes before we start? I'm good. Okay, then let's do this. I'm a little nervous though, Chad, because like <laughs> I haven't I haven't been on a podcast talking about a movie in a while, and I I remember when I started my movie podcast, it took me a few episodes to really kind of get my sea legs and and know how to like talk about a movie. So I'm I'm nervous that I'm not going to remember how to do that. Yeah, it it comes back to you pretty quick. I I, uh, I was talking with. Eric or with Blaine last couple of weeks and we I said something similar because it'd been a long time it's been a year and a half basically since I had last done Cinescope and so I said you know after just a couple minutes it it felt like I got back into the groove so hopefully it comes back to you pretty quickly too I hope so I hope so because I was sitting there watching the aviator and I was taking notes but then I realized that I was engrossed in the movie as I (laughs) as I want to be and then I'll be like oh I didn't take any notes for like 45 minutes right I hope I you know I don't know and uh, with a movie like The Aviator that has like four forty-five minute time spans in it, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Yes, it is a longer film. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinescope. Uh, we are here to talk about The Aviator today. And returning guest I have with me tonight is TJ Draper, formerly of the Movie Bike Podcast. How are you doing, TJ? I am doing well. I'm I'm happy to be speaking with you again. I don't think I've heard your voice. Well, no, that's not true. I've listened to your podcast, so I've heard your voice, but I haven't spoken with you in person other than text or, or Twitter in quite a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. I, I, I didn't look up to see what like the last thing we recorded together was, but it has been a while. And you'll be glad oh. to know, I actually took the time recently and listened back to a couple of Movie Bite podcast episodes just for the fun of it. How did you access those? Because the site's down and I haven't had time to fix it. And it's not an active podcast, so it hasn't been a priority. I had things saved in my podcast app, I think. Ah, uh, just a, a okay. few select episodes that maybe I hadn't listened to or I'd saved a while back and wanted to listen to again. So, yeah, I listened to our Galaxy Quest episode recently. That was fun. Nice. And I, I was made aware of how just like crappy my mic was back then. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad my, my production quality has gotten a lot better since then. So you're saying you have a better mic now. I am. <laughs> and I, I pretty much have the same mic. The last episode that I was on the Cinescope podcast, I, I knew I had it somewhere. I remembered it was one of the tabs on my browser on my phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, was We talked about Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. That was episode oh, yeah, 66. That's right. Oh, wow. And I really want to talk about Star Trek Six with you because it is also a fantastic film. But... Well, I think that'll probably be on our docket for next time. Since we were okay. relaunching Cinescope, I was just like, you know, I don't know if I want to jump into any series, even if we've already sort of talked about them. So next time you have my word okay. we can do star trek all right <laughs> all right i you know i love star trek that's it's you can probably you can have star trek when you take it out of my cold dead hands okay <laughs> i didn't mean for that to get so dark but you know <laughs> how about you take a moment to just reintroduce yourself for those who forgot or are maybe new to the podcast and tell us what you do and who you are oh well it seems a little self-serving but i guess i will um i'm tj you and I hosted uh, for 50 episodes. You were my co-host on the Movie Byte podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've guested on it since then when Joe came back. And then you guested on my uh, show Retake, which saw even less downloads than the Movie Byte podcast. 
so that I mean that's where you and I met and uh, I'm a web I'm a software developer for the web so I write lots of backend software for the web and you know I'm full stacks but I, I tend to focus on the PHP and I'm actually writing something in C sharp right now so I'm really moving beyond <laughs> the web even so I'm a software developer I don't know what else do people want to know about me Chad I'm like I said I'm not used to doing this anymore I will pretend that I knew some of those words you just said and okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean anyways I mean what have you been doing since podcasting well, that's pretty much it, is, is writing yeah. software. Just coding all day? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's my day job. And then off, I, I have side projects. And, you know, I often, I mean, I will spend time with my family, obviously. I have four kids and a wife. And, uh, you know, my wife and I watch television at night after the kids go to bed. We travel sometimes. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, that's TJ, everybody. And I think we're just ready to go ahead and jump into our discussion for The Aviator. This is a movie I hadn't seen before. So thank you for introducing it to me. I was happy to introduce you to it. It's a fantastic film. It was very good. I'm excited to talk about it. Some stats for the film. It released on Christmas of 2004. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. So fun fact, this is the first Martin Scorsese film I've seen. Oh, really? Yeah. It was. <laughs> he also directed just among other things, Taxi Driver, <laughs> Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, Shutter Island, Hugo, The Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, and most recently, The Irishman. It was written by John Logan. The music is by Howard Shore, who also composed the scores for The Fly, Big, The Silence of the Lambs, Mrs. Doubtfire, Seven, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, The Departed, The Twilight Saga Eclipse, Hugo, The Hobbit Trilogy, and Spotlight. I just want to interject and say this is unlike any other Howard Shore score I have ever heard personally. Yeah, I would agree. It stands out for sure. Now, I will say something strange. The last two films I have talked about on this podcast also featured composers who wrote music for the Twilight film. So I don't know what the weird trend is. <laughs> it was not planned at all, but we last talked about In Bruges, which was scored by Carter Burwell. Mm, yes. And then we talked about the Greta Gerwig Little Women adaptation, which was scored by Alexander Desplat. And so both of those people. Yes. And now, okay, that's really random. That's like the strangest connective thread of all time. It really is. But the, the Twilight Saga, say what you will about it, the first film does not have good music, and then the other films do. Um, I think they have pretty good music. So there you go. Carter Burwell and Alexander Desplat both do great work. Yeah. And the movie does star Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Blanchett, Kate Beckinsale, John C. Riley, Matt Ross, Alec Baldwin, Alan Alda, Ian Holm, Danny Houston, Gwen Stefani, Jude Law, Willem Dafoe, and Adam Scott. I had completely forgotten Gwen Stefani was in this film, I just want to say. When she appeared on screen, I'm like, wait, is that Gwen Stefani? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> See, I don't think I know Gwen Stefani even well enough outside of this film to recognize her. I didn't realize it was her until I looked up the cast list. I was like, oh, that, that was her? She's okay. of a different different era. You, I mean, I think it's established you are younger than I am, and it's just a little bit different era. Yeah, just like, a little she bit. Was, she was famous in the 80s when I was growing up. Gwen Stefani was? Yes. Oh, yes. Are you thinking... What? Uh, maybe maybe nineties, maybe nineties. Okay, yeah, I'm th I'm thinking more nineties. No doubt was well six nine seven. Nine, I mean, yeah, probably probably nineties. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I probably Anyways. have my dates off just a little bit. It, uh, when you're a kid, it blurs together. A little yeah. Bit. <laughs> well, let's get into the things. So, what was your first experience with this movie? Do you remember your first time watching it or anything like that? I do. This is rare, actually, for a film that I like this much. Um, I 
kept hearing that I needed to watch it. Um, it was a favorite of, uh, well, so on the Dan Benjamin, various Dan Benjamin podcasts, he would have clips on his soundboard that came from this film, and then they would reference the film, and then I started hearing more about it, and I realizing that I needed to, to watch it. And so one time I was uh, traveling, and I was in a hotel room, and I had nothing to watch, And uh, but the, the this is back when hotel rooms had DVD players. And so I went and I rented... Uh, I had nothing else to do that night, and I rented uh, the the film and put it in the DVD player and watched it and uh, loved it. It was just love at first watching. I don't remember what year this was, but it was several years ago, uh, eight, nine years ago, something like that. That was my first experience with it. My first experience, as I mean, I just already said, this was my first time watching it. I think I was aware of it, but I had no clue the the content of it. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know mm. necessarily that it was a biological film biographical you mean sure <laughs> biographical <laughs> that's, that's better different. <laughs> yeah biographical film <laughs> nice nice uh, <laughs> so i i knew very little except that leonardo dicaprio was in it and i'm pretty sure i knew that it was a scorsese film so did you know anything about howard hughes going into this no not at all um, interesting so okay. i mean i was engrossed from the very start of the film like from the very moment we were jumped into the production of hell's angels i was wanting mm. to look up <laughs> and read about it before the movie was even over but i had to like okay chad patient be patient you you will <laughs> find out more as you watch the film but then every other single thing that hughes put his hands in from the rest of the film the the government projects his relationships with hollywood elite i mean people like Catherine hepburn and ava gardner it fascinated me and i i just after I finished talking about this with you, I'm probably going to go read about Howard Hughes for a long time because I was just that fascinated with the way we just sort of dropped into his life and how he was this magnetic personality. And so I, I'm really curious to just learn more about him already. Yeah, I mean, and that that definitely was my kind of takeaway too. And I watched it at that hotel room as I immediately got out my laptop and just started looking up everything that I could about Howard Hughes. Because I, I, I mean, I knew the name. Mm -hmm. I knew he was, uh, you know, he had done good things in aviation. But beyond that, I didn't really know a lot, which is interesting because the man has a very interesting life as you as you get from the film. And, and the film is actually, I mean, obviously it's dramatic and it, it, it takes liberties and things, but the essential story mm -hmm. is there of Howard Hughes' life when you start reading about the man. Uh, and of course it focuses on, the, focuses on the glory days. You don't get into the madness that kind of followed, uh, although it's hinted at at the end of the film, if I can, you know, jump ahead a little bit, mm -hmm. the madness that kind of follows, uh, I, I, I use the term madness, like just the, the, the mental instability and the continuing, uh, you know, going down that road. Um, and it, so it's a, it's a sad story in a way, but 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 Scorsese manages to focus on the glory days and not he doesn't ignore the the mental illness that was going on, but mm -hmm. but but to also somehow bring it around and say, but he still had a great life. He did these wonderful things. He defeated these these. He overcame these things. Um, it, it's just it's really wonderful. I agree, and the Scorsese himself as a filmmaker in in this film lives up to the reputation i suppose i don't think a whole lot needs to be said about scorsese's talents but i mean just no. the, the, from the way things are shot like one shot that really stands out to me is towards the end of the film while he is in the movie screening room 
and locked up in there for a long time. We see him yes. looking into the camera lens and the, the view we have is of the camera lens and his reflection inside of it rather than at him himself. And that's such a, a really unique shot. And then just the way that the, the lights are played with in that scene, uh, mm-hmm. the way he's shown from the front with the projections behind him and how it sort of like creates this halo, uh, not halo, this like aura around him. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what shot you're talking about. Yeah, it's really, really yeah. interesting. It's very, very cool stuff. I, I'm excited to now watch more Scorsese stuff just to see more unique things like that that you don't get from the everyday popcorn filmmaker. Well, the next film I would recommend to you of Scorsese's is Goodfellas, which is my favorite Scorsese mm-hmm. film. I have seen parts of that one. Yeah. The Aviator's a close second, but but it's the same sort of thing. You always get from Scorsese. I mean, he it's, it's a master class in framing mm-hmm. in cinematography and lighting like and i know that he's like he's a director and there are other talented people bringing that there but he has the eye i mean obviously he's directing and telling them how he wants it and you know he really has the eye to catch those sorts of things i mean and another thing that stands out that kind of separates the wheat from the chaff if you will is it's along the same lines where you know there in 2004 cgi was not as good as it is now but you look at this film and you would be hard pressed to say that was cgi and you know that there's there is a lot of cgi used in this film mm-hmm. like there's there's old planes there's things that we just don't have anymore and so there's a lot of cgi in the film but it's used to good effect. It's the way it's shot and the way it's handled. And it's not like, you know, the where you ha- a lesser director would throw more CGI at it in a way that wasn't good. You know, Scorsese knew exactly how to utilize the tools that he had in 2004. Do you have any more like story or like cinematography kind of stuff to talk about? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, kind of the overarching, like, like this, it's almost like there's two kind of stories going on at the same time in this film, mm-hmm. and and one of those is the success, right? It's it's you have the success of Howard Hughes, and and Roger Ebert had this this wonderful quote. Uh, I read his review, uh, and I I pulled this quote from Roger Ebert's review. I, I miss the man. Uh, he says Hughes apparently became the world's richest man by going bankrupt at higher and higher levels, right? <laughs> so so that's that's the, the the one story is this this underdog success story where he comes and he continues to to fight the man uh you know in in literally does fight the man with senator uh owen brewster um played marvelously and wonderfully by alan alda i mean you hate the man and that is uh, like just (laughs) you're supposed to like that is so wonderfully played and so you have that story of of Howard Hughes overcoming all this stuff. I mean, in one way, like, how do you make this rich, you know, boy, man that inherited all this money seem like the underdog? But in many ways, he really was. And and so you have that story, but then you also have the story of this burden of his mental illness just creeping in further and further. And and even, I would say, if he were alive now, it would be identified as mental illness. I don't think it really was at the time because it wasn't as much a focus on that, but it's so clear reading about him and then watching this film, how it, it's even more that he overcame in order to be as great as he was. And, and the film focused on the glory days, and so it kind of ends with a hint towards, you know, he gets stuck on that phrase, way of the future, way of the future, you know, way of the future. And, and it's kind of this, you know what, and, and he kind of looks at the camera at the end and smiles, and he says, way of the future, and it's like he's accepting of it. This was his life. He did good, and he's losing control of 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 his mental faculties. So it's 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 really these two stories playing against each other, right? The descent, but also the ascent. Yeah, that's a really fascinating way of putting it. The the simultaneous like peaking the mountain, and then the the rapid descent thereafter. Yeah. Now, just talk to talk more about Hughes, at least as presented in the film as a character. What I loved about him is, at least at the start. 
everything seemed to come out of a desperate desire to sort of prove himself to be his own person. He wanted mm, to mm-hmm. separate his legacy from the tool company that his, uh, his family had created back in Houston. He wanted to get away from that place that he saw as dirty and disgusting and prove himself to be Mr. Hughes, not kiddo, not any other pet nickname that people had for him. He wanted to be Howard Hughes filmmaker, Howard Hughes aviator. And that's definitely how it started. But then as his work on Hell's Angels came to completion and he started exploring more and more of the, the aviation side of things, it became more about his own passion and his own interest in aviation and furthering the industry. And so much of it seemed to come from personal ego. There were definitely things that he did where it was like he had this extreme confidence in himself, but I never at any point in the film thought it was just like stupid, undeserved confidence. Everything came from a belief in himself, a belief in his vision, a belief in his dream and what he would accomplish and what would be accomplished by the progression of the art of aviation. And so I I really like that part of his character. Yeah, you might almost say that in in many ways, he's the Steve Jobs of aviation in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, which, you know, Steve Jobs did a lot of great work, but was also a jerk, you know, and and, <laughs> and, and Howard Hughes could definitely be a jerk. And, and, and I wrote at one point, it was early on in the film, and he's in the club, and he's hitting on this girl, and I wrote down, what a sexist pig, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, just because I mean, he could be a sexist pig and a jerk, and and uh, he could treat others poorly, but yet there was genius there. And I don't like to admit it sometimes, but it almost seems like often that, that those go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of frustrating in that way. A line that I wrote down pretty early on in the film also is when he's talking with Jack and he says, oh, well, let's just purchase TWA then. And, <laughs> yes. and Jack yeah, yeah. says, are you sure you don't want to think about it for five minutes? <laughs> we got a tiger by the tail. Right. He's got a tiger by the tail. I don't want to let it go. And so that that is really his mindset from the get-go and throughout his career is, this is my thought. This is what I want to pursue. Let's go for it full throttle ahead. To hell with money, to hell with this or that. This is what I want to accomplish. And I'm not going to stop until what I want has been accomplished. What I, I am trying to achieve has been achieved. Yeah, absolutely. The moment he is test flying the plane, this is just a particular moment that I really enjoyed. He's told not to worry about the record the speed record, (laughs) but then he looks over, he's got the headwind and you get this look on Leonardo DiCaprio's face and you see in that instant, he decides, okay, I'm going for it. Like I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to. And in that instant, it ends up going, okay, yes, he crashes it, but it's not a a fatal crash. It's not an overly traumatizing crash to him. He just cuts his foot. He just got a little scratch. But then obviously there's the, the later crash scene, which I was not expecting. I was kind of just like in shock watching that other crash scene where he is flying. Was it? It's the spy plane and things just go wrong after so long in the air. It's yeah. just like this freak accident in comparison to that earlier time when the, the stakes were much higher because he had limited fuel and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. watching him crash and knowing that this was just like so many things in his life falling apart at this time, seeing how his his body was demolished in that instant and just you could see how the rest of his career at least in the immediate future was just going to go downhill because of all the other things he had sort of writing on this plane and his other immediate projects yeah and the speculation is and and pretty much as portrayed in the film is that that accident when which he is was 
it was almost a miraculous that he walked away mm-hmm. from it. That that accident is really what pushed him over the edge. Like he was already struggling mentally, but then he got pretty banged up and sustained injuries to his head and face as well as the burns, and it just kind of pushed him further down that road of, of the of the mental instability. There were two other scenes that really highlighted his character to me. You see in several scenes, actually, where he's among the other rich people or celebrity or in these environments where there's a lot of people and a lot of press, and he's so uncomfortable. And when he is with Catherine and he goes to her family's estate and they're bombarding him with questions and conversation, and he's not really comfortable with any of that either. But the second any kind of conversation turns to aviation and what he's trying to accomplish with his career, he is so confident in himself and he becomes so sure-footed. And so it's really almost inspiring to see this person who goes and flips a switch like that, going from being so uncomfortable to automatically being like, okay, this is my wheelhouse. This is what I know. This is what I could talk about for hours and hours upon yeah. days. And we see that there in the the Hepburn uh, household, uh, though yeah. he's a little bit of a jerk, but kind of deservedly so. A little so. bit, although I, I, I felt I felt bad for him because yeah, he absolutely. really didn't know how to communicate with them and then and then they landed on a subject that he could talk about and right. he was he was passionate about and they shut him down almost immediately and I felt exactly. so bad for him. But then and then oh I I actually wrote this down where he something was said about money and uh Catherine Hepburn's mother says, Oh we don't care about money here and he he immediately his rejoinder is that's because you have it. And it's just you could hear a pin drop. And he says, excuse me? (laughs) He's like, you don't care about money because you have it. Right. Some of us have to work for, I'm paraphrasing now, but some of us have to work for a living, you know. We see that same sort of attitude in the the Congress hearings, um, the Senate hearings. He is immediately prior to that locked up in the screening room for God knows how long. Months. And yeah, <laughs> months, a very, very long time. It, it's his hygiene's bad. He's been driving himself crazy in that room. And then all of a sudden he comes out to the hearing and he's able to talk about this is what I've accomplished. This is what I've done with my life. And here you are trying to strike me down for something that is not really the issue at hand here. And so in that scene, we see that same sort of fire lit under him where he's able to talk so passionately about what he's doing, what he's trying to do, what he's accomplished. And I, I really like that part of his character, too, where he, he's just when it comes to the things that he is passionate about, the things that he's knowledgeable about, he is as confident as any person out there. Absolutely. And and I really loved how, at least in the film, and who knows, you know, if this is as true to real life, I mean, we do know that the the hearings were considered a victory for him and that he really made Owen Brewster look bad in real life. But, mm-hmm. but who knows, like, to what extent that that really happened, how he was able to transition, he was able to overcome his problems long enough to get out there and, and act like a human and, and really, you know, stick it to him. Well, I was reading a little bit about it before we recorded. Apparently, in the next Senate election, he gave $60,000 to Brewster's opponent. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. Uh, he was able to get him out of office that way. Which, you know, say what you will about money and politics and, <laughs> and stuff, but Owen Brewster needed to go. It was pretty clear he was, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> as, as one as one thing that I read put it, he was the errand boy for one uh, uh, trip. Right. And, and that's pretty much borne out in, in the film as as well. 
since we're, we've talked about Howard, do you have anything else to sort of say about him? Or I, I really have more to say about Leonardo DiCaprio now than I do about Howard Hughes. Okay, let, let's talk about Leo a little bit. I don't understand how he went so long without an Oscar, and particularly after this performance. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the man is believable in every age range he acts, which is a pretty wide age range. So mm-hmm. think about him at the beginning of this film, and it, part of it, of course, is makeup and the haircut and everything, but he looks like this, this young carefree and you know he's doing hell's angels as his first film and he's so naive and he goes up to to mayor and he asks him for the uh for, for the to borrow the cameras you know and then mm-hmm. and well we've got 24 and we need 26 which is unheard of at the time you know and he's so young there and so believable but then when you get to the end of the film and you look at him some 30 something years later i didn't do the math that may be off but it, it is a, a chunk of change later and and he just he's so believable there too and again i know some of that's the makeup but but he He's able to pull off this wide range of of acting uh, across the the age spectrum, and you know his he does not in the beginning of the film does not appear in any way ill or mad, and by the end of the film he does, and it's just such an amazing performance, and he never, you know, it would be so easy when when you're playing a character like this, it would be so easy to to kind of go into caricature, and he never does. He rides that line so well and and it's it's just an amazing performance it's impressive what he does with just his voice alone you you hear yes. the difference in his age just in his voice from yes. the beginning of the film to the end of the film he's got this sort of mm-hmm. rasp by the end of it i can ima- like i i imagine times when i have a rasp in my throat and yeah. it's i can't keep it i have to clear my throat but he maintains it for so much of the film i mean he's an actor and so he's good at acting and he did get nominated for the award for this film but unfortunately he did oh, not win yeah I, I can't i just don't understand how he didn't win yeah. it took him so long to get an oscar i mean I, I didn't i didn't realize he was nominated so i'm glad he got nominated because he i mean it's just so good it's just it's hard to over uh, overstate just how good he is in this film and i can't i cannot it, it's to the point chad where i cannot envision any other actor in this role? Mm-hmm. Somebody who did win the Academy Award for this film is Kate Blanchett as Catherine Hepburn. Also very deserved. Oh, yeah. man. So I also really didn't know anything about Catherine Hepburn. Not that this movie necessarily gives a big glimpse into her life, but she nails the transatlantic accent. And I, mm. I love this sort of like bubbling energy that she has from the start of the film and this nonstop talking. She's she's glamorous, but she doesn't shy away from her, quote, outdoorsy label as she labels it. Yes. And yes. we see the stark contrast between a Hollywood star like her as compared to a Hollywood star like Errol Flynn. She's classy, mm-hmm. more concerned about the world. She at one point talks about, I don't remember exactly what the issue is that she brings up, but she talks about something that's happening elsewhere that's more important than movies. She says to Hughes, movies are movies, Mr. Hughes, not life. And so as an <laughs> actress who makes a living on her movie, she's very aware of how superficial the whole process is. Uh, yeah, whereas yeah, yeah. Errol Flynn is here at the table stealing food off Hugh's plate and just being an overall like jerk bag. What an awkward setting that was too. And seeing like they just came up and it's clear that they should have left them alone. And they're just, Oh, it was such an awkward scene. (laughs) So good. So I, I love seeing the, the contrast that she has from others and seeing how in that way, they're two peas in a pod uh, because we see throughout the film that Hughes wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a partier. He's not doing drugs at any time in this film. He orders glasses of milk or bottles of milk <laughs> which which becomes important later it does so in that way they're, they're kindred spirits because they're both sort of antithetical to the whole hollywood 
movie star rich person lifestyle and as their relationship develops you see the the sort of unfettered support that she has for him in all of his endeavors and the way she supports him, the way uh, she comforts him when he comes home, says, I'm proud of you for the way he's accomplishing things that he set out to do. I really admire their relationship. And, you know, he teaches her to fly. And she has that great quote that comes back later when she visits him in the screening room. Uh, she says, you taught me to fly, Howard. I'll take the wheel. Because that's when he first admits to somebody. That's when he first opens up and says, sometimes I see things that I know aren't there. I, I, yeah. I fear that I'm going mad. And so yeah. he trusts her not only with that, but also the whole germ circumstance. You know, mm. they're, they're in the, the cockpit and he says, yeah, I wrap the wheel in cellophane because people have a whole lot of crap on their hands. You don't want to know about it. Yeah, you don't want to know. Right after that, he gets a milk for himself and then he offers to share it. And then he takes a drink after she's had a sip, too. So it's like yeah. with her, the germs don't matter, which is a, a weird romantic thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And at least in the movie, it's I don't know about real life, but in the movie, they had such chemistry and they were so good together. And it was such a boy. I, I was I was I don't think I ha actually had any tears, but like I was like on the verge of being just like, oh, man, when they broke up and, mm -hmm. and especially how what a jerk Howard Hughes had become to her by that point. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think Catherine, at least as portrayed in the movie, I don't think Catherine Hepburn had any uh, didn't have some part in that. But it was just, oh, it was, it was sad to see them break up. Yeah, it's all you have that hope watching that scene that she she's trying to be straightforward with him she's not beating around the bush she's saying okay there's this is what happened i'm sorry uh but we're adults here you need to know this is me telling you there's the information and yeah. you hope that he's going to be mature about it and is going to be an adult about it just like she was and you also know that he's probably not going to so yeah. it, it, it's it's still heartbreaking all the same uh yes, but very heartbreaking. having her come back later in the film after seeing yes they sort of ended things in a way that wasn't very I wouldn't say unhealthy, but it was what what's what's a word I'm looking for, TJ? How 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 would you call the ending of their relationship? Um fraught with sure. difficulties? Yeah, it, 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 there's not a lot of closure. It's just he's a jerk to her, she leaves, that's the end of it. But yeah. we see that scene where he has caught wind of a tabloid or somebody who is about to post some pictures of her with yeah. Spencer Tracy. And he says, okay, I don't care what the cost is. I'm going to buy those pictures from you. So you're not going to publish them and spread this stuff about her. And at the end of the film, as he sort of sequestered himself in the screening room, she comes after having finally learned about this and is trying to thank him and trying to comfort him. And he doesn't let her in the same way that he did before, but it's a really touching moment from her to see her come back and to be thankful for what he did for her, despite his earlier treatment of her. Absolutely. And, and, and to the point of, of, you know, Kate, going back to Kate Blanchett as the actress, like I wanted to mention this quote that again, this is from Roger Ebert. You can tell that I, I typically like his reviews. And he said, Kate Blanchett has the task of playing Catherine Hepburn, who was herself so close to caricature that to play her accurately involves some risk. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely right. But again, if you know anything about Catherine Hepburn and you, you know, you, you read some stuff and you see some stuff like it, it really is kind of a pitch perfect performance. And you might look at it. And if you didn't know anything about Catherine Hepburn, you might say, Oh, this is a little bit of a caricature, but, but it really, I think is really good. And, and she does it so well. I have yet Chad to see a film. So I've seen some bad films with Kate Blanchett in the film, but I have yet to see Kate Blanchett not be good in the film. She's, she's so good. Right. The, the first one that comes to mind when you say that is Monuments Men. 
which we actually talked about on Movie Bite several years ago. I, I've forgotten all about it. Yeah. <laughs> and not a great movie, but she's in it, and she's good as always. So, Well, the one that I always bring up is uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal <laughs> Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which, which is a terrible film. I don't like anything about it, and yet <laughs> I will watch it just to watch Kate Blanchett in that film. She's so good. I don't know if I'd ever talk about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull on Cinescope, but I do have affection for that film uh, for different reasons, but that's uh, a different conversation. Sorry. Yes, that is. That's not, not the topic of Cinescope. <laughs> um, now, a, a couple other characters that I thought we could sort of lump together a little bit are the characters of Odie, who's like mm. his chief engineer, and then Noah, who handles his finances. Do you have to, anything to say about either of those characters? Well, I don't actually know the actor for um, the first one, uh, Odie, but I... Uh, His name is Matt Ross. Okay, I, I don't know him, but I will say Noah is played by John C. Riley, who mm-hmm. is a wonderful and very talented actor. And really, it's it's just a little bit more than a bit part, but every part, every film or scene that he's in, is he's outstanding, as, as always. And you feel bad for the man, uh, just in terms of the story. You feel bad for Noah Dietrich, because he's having to sift through everything that, that Howard Hughes tells him to do and and figure out if it's good, if it's safe, or how he can talk him down, and sometimes he can't, and, you know, hold it together. And, and it, it seems like he did hold things together in real life, from what I can tell, and uh, that's portrayed in the movie. Even though he had a hard time doing it, he got it done. And so, that I mean, and, and again, just wonderful performance from John C. Riley. And I wish I knew what other films the actor for Odie was in. And, and again, even less of a part, I think, than Noah in some ways, Noah Dietrich. But, but still a critical part to, I think, um, the success of Howard Hughes. What I admired about both of these characters is how they stuck by Hughes' side through everything, through the mm, eccentricities, mm-hmm. through the spending of money, through the the numerous failures that came along with the successes. They stayed with him through it all. They both came on during the production of Hell, Hell's Angels, and they were both still with him at the end of the film in the 50s. Noah, especially, him sticking around, <laughs> being in charge of this guy's money when he nearly drove them bankrupt many, many times, many shows times. faith in the man. And in the process, and even at the hearings towards the end of the film, he was by his side. He was there to show support for this man who, yes, has put him through some tough times. And yeah, they've had some screen matches over the telephone because Hughes was wanting to spend money that they frankly really didn't have to spend. And he was saying, okay, well, mortgage this, sell this, put this up for collateral. But he stuck by him because ultimately he knew that Howard was going to ride this thing out, success or not, but more often than not, the successes were the final result. Well, he went bankrupt at higher and higher levels. Right. (laughs) It wound up working out. And I looked it up uh, just because I was curious. Noah Dietrich was in charge of the Hughes company, whatever it was called, until I think 1950s. Uh, But then he actually stuck with it and still had some hand in the operations and the spending until 1970. Mm, So he stayed with him for a long time. Very impressive. Yeah. And, and, and as to Odie, Odie actually reminds me of me in some ways. And not that I'm somebody who works with my hands and I'm an engineer in that way. I'm not engineering physical products, but I am a software engineer. And I'm not as imaginative or um, uh, I don't always have the overarching vision. I get stuck in the details. And and so I, I look at the character of Odie sometimes and I see 
this this grand vision that that uh, Howard Hughes has of pushing him to do better. I want the rivets completely impossible, but I want the rivets, you know, to be completely flush so that this thing is smooth. You know, mm-hmm. I want and and so he he's pushing Odie to be better and do better. And as a as a software engineer, sometimes I know that I need to be pushed. Like otherwise, I'll I'll do it in the same old way, and it's not as good. You know, mm-hmm. and so that's the kind of how I identify with Odie a little bit uh, in this film. Well, you also have that scene where they're working on the Hercules and Odie is getting more and more and more stressed out about mm-hmm. the, the time crunch and about the money involved. And he's saying, you, you, you have to decide on a wheel. And he's just freaking out at Howard and he, he's able to calm him down. It's me. It's definitely me. <laughs> he's able to calm him down and say, okay, don't freak out on me. Go take a couple hours off. Go see your wife. We'll get back to this. Things will be okay. And mm-hmm. things are okay. Uh, eventually. Speaking of that, I'm glad you brought that up. I I meant to write this down. I don't think I did, but but that's a great contrast too. And how great Howard Hughes was, and then immediately, same scene, Howard Hughes is the one who who actually is breaking down, mm-hmm. uh, and and he he gets stuck on a phrase as he's wont to do. Um, and uh, show me the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. Show me the blueprints. Show me the blueprint. Like he, you know, he's mm-hmm. got that mental illness thing that kicks in right then, just after he was so kind to Odie and told him he's the one that needs to take a break. You know, it's going to be all right. And then he, of course, has that that breakdown. It's just this contrast, you know. And again, it's the it's the dueling stories. What other characters do you want to talk about? One of the things that I, in my research, uh, discovered is that uh, Ava Gardner, uh, he really did date Ava Gardner, but it it appears that in the film, she actually becomes a stand-in for other relationships that that Howard Hughes had that we didn't see on screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the things that happen uh, in the Ava Gardner relationship were actually things that happened with another star, but I think it would have muddied the waters to introduce yet another woman into the story of the film. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was a a really nice way of of storytelling is to, to bring in Ava Gardner basically as the stand-in for all the other relationships that that he had what you know and, and there's some i guess there's some smoothing over that comes in that but there's also an economy of of storytelling that needed to be observed there mm-hmm. but it, she actually did date for a while or what or was with howard hughes in some fashion played by kate beckinsale mm-hmm. uh, who who did a wonderful job the thing i liked most about her character was they had that falling out where he had bugged her room because he was so paranoid and suffering mentally uh, yes. And she hit him and he left and th- presumably they didn't speak for a long time. But yes. towards the end, when he was preparing for the hearings, I don't know if he called her up or if she just sort of showed up out of the blue. I think he called her. I think yes. it says that he called her. Yes, but he did, she yeah. didn't hesitate to come and to help him get prepared for that, to to clean him up, to make him presentable. She says, I did this for you because I know you would have done it for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I, I admired that about her, despite the way they had ended things before. It's sort of the same thing that had happened with Catherine was, yes, things didn't end on the best note, but both women were willing to come back and to give him the the gesture of thanks that they felt he deserved. For sure. Now, the only other characters I really had anything to say about would be Juan and Owen Brewster, which you could sort of lump together just because they're they're <laughs> they are working for each other <laughs> in certain ways. What what do you have to say about either of them? You've already talked a little bit about Owen. Senator Owen, of course, played by Alan Alda, is marvelously villainous and kind of a to me, anyway, kind of a stand-in for how I feel about most politicians, anyway. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, you've got Juan Tripp. Uh, I don't know how accurate to real life this is, but he played by Alec Baldwin. He sure is a jerk, and uh, you know, he's he's trying to get the monopoly 
on the on the system by by somehow selling to the American people that having monopoly is actually a good thing in that prices will be better. That's not <laughs> how any economy I've ever heard of works, but that's how it comes across with Alec Baldwin, and uh, Alec Baldwin is always wonderful as a villain. You know, just just like uh, it, it reminds me, it's it's almost the same character that you get in um oh what's that movie ABC Always Be Closing uh I'll think of the name. Oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, but yeah, I, can't, yeah. I think can't think of the title. But yeah, I mean, just almost the same character as you see there. You know, third prize, you're fired. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's just he does a wonderful job with this role. Yeah, I mean, that leads me into me saying that there are a lot of people in this movie that I didn't realize were in this movie. <laughs> John C. Riley being one of them, Alec Baldwin being one of them. Adam Scott was a real surprise for me. Not that I know Adam Scott from a lot, but I know he was in uh, Parks and Recreation, which is a right. show that I haven't watched a lot of, but I'm aware of it. And that was, I thought, his big break in my mind was Adam Scott got big through Parks and Rec. And maybe he did, but just seeing him in this several years prior was interesting for me. The name of the film I was looking for was Glengarry Glen Ross. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, there are a lot of big people in this movie that I didn't realize were in this movie. John C. Riley, one of them, too. Any other characters? Jude Law's Errol Flynn. Oh, yeah. Errol Flynn was fantastic. Just almost just pretty much a cameo, but just fantastic. I'm trying to think where I've seen Danny Houston before. He played Jack Fry. And again, a bit part of kind of a cameo, but just wonderful. I've seen him in something before, and I'm... I'm going to, oh, he was Stryker in X-Men Origins Wolverine. So yeah, just, you know, this this movie is full of just great actors. I yeah. Oh, another cameo, uh, Robert Gross, played by Brent Spiner, uh, who plays Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. So that was mm-hmm. fun. I had forgotten he was he was in here. Ian Holm, of course, as Professor uh, Fitz. Uh, just just wonderful. And oh, that, that super awkward scene where he brings Professor Fitz in to uh, to measure the bosoms of the women. <laughs> on the, oh my goodness. <laughs> You're just, I felt so embarrassed both for myself watching the scene and for Ian Holm. <laughs> He's just like, he looks behind him like, me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's fantastic. That was another person that was brought on during the production of Hell's Angels, and he stuck with him through to the end. He was riding cockpit when they brought their Hercules in the air. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like, uh, because these people, as far as I can tell, actually did stick with him, that he, even though he had these flaws and he had this mental instability, he had this magnetic personality trait or something that, that kept people in, that kept people on his side. Yeah, whether it's what is he going to do next, what is he going to <laughs> jump after next, or right. what can we accomplish next together, I think is just as compelling. Seeing his track record for success, seeing how he pushed the envelope and env- innovated, that would probably be an exciting team to be a part of, no matter whether you did fail, uh, just because you're, you're trying new things that hadn't been done before. And, and and I'm just looking over the cast list here, like Willem Dafoe, like, you know, he mm-hmm. just, he got these huge actors in to play these like bit parts and it's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Being Scorsese has its advantages, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Everybody wants to be in a Scorsese film for sure. Now music, I will admit that I didn't notice a lot of Shore's music just within watching the film. And so I'm excited to go back and listen to it separately. And I'll let you talk about it in just a moment. But the the main thing I wanted to talk about as far as music goes is the repetition of the Moonlight Serenade by Glenn Miller. Uh, Do you think there's any significance to that track in particular? Because that was the the, the song that played many times throughout that uh, sort of highlighted, I guess, the the obsessive compulsiveness of what uh, Howard was going through. Well, I'll be honest, I'm usually one who uh, loves film scoring, and I have a lot of film scores in my library that I listen to while I'm working all the time. 
even though the, I think this m- music works for this film, I can't even pick out a melody from it right now. And I don't think it's that particularly great. Um, may- maybe if I were to listen to it on its own, I would feel differently, but it just doesn't stand out to me. And that can be good, um, but I, I I tend to like film music that I can remember and like, you know, that, that is memorable. And this, I, I just, like I said, I can't even think of what the music is in my head right now. Yeah, I, I couldn't pick out any particular melodic material either, but I think that that sometimes, this is not often the case, but sometimes the mark of a good score is a score that you don't always notice because that means it was used effectively. I have no complaint with the score in the Right, film. right. Especially considering this was hot off the heels of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, mm. it, it's difficult to not compare Shore's music here to what he did there. And this is, it's just a different animal. So Yeah, I, I think he almost, because often Howard Shore's music does sound a lot like Lord of the Rings, especially um, the one Twilight film that he scored. There's a certain part where it's like, oh, the orcs are coming. Oh, no, wait, wrong film. <laughs> and uh, here, I think that because it was so close to Lord of the Rings, he knew, or, or maybe Martin Scorsese told him it can't sound like Lord of the Rings. And so he did something just completely different. And it sounds nothing like you, you honestly, I don't hear any, Howard Shore in this film. So that's very interesting. Well, let's go ahead and go into our final discussion section, which is the the relevance or the takeaways or the themes. Now, this is always a little bit more challenging when you come to a biopic like this uh, because it's real life. And so (laughs) there's not always lessons to be extrapolated from a person's life. But I, I think there's a few things that stood out to me. First off being just the value of hard work of effort, of taking risks. There's plenty of that in this film, and you see sometimes where it doesn't pay off, but you also see a lot of times where it does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Also, putting faith in the right people. Uh, we, we talked about at least three people who stuck around once they were in Mr. Hughes' employ for various reasons. <laughs> who knows what they were thinking, but they did stick around for the ride. And so I, I think there's something to be said for putting faith in the right people because those people help you to achieve your dreams if you pick the right people in there in your life long enough. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any other sort of takeaways or uh, like maybe just like, maybe not themes or anything like that, but just things that you get from the film? Well, I mean, I mean, obviously there's the legacy of Howard Hughes and aviation. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I fly a couple of times a year for various things related to work. My, my company is in New York City. I live in Tennessee. And so I, I fly to the office a couple of times a year. And he contributed so much to the aviation industry. Like, he bought TWA. TWA lasted into the 90s. And even then, like, kind of revel- his, all, that, all the ways in which he did things kind of revolutionized the way we think about travel and flying. And had one trip been successful, I think that the aviation industry would look very different than it does today. And so I think we have Howard Hughes directly to thank for the aviation industry that we have now, which I'm very thankful for. It it is still, um, as Superman is wont to say in his various films, the safest way to travel, uh, statistically <laughs> speaking. And and we have Howard Hughes largely, I think, to thank in many, many ways. Not not in every way, obviously, but in a lot of ways, he he contributed so much to the aviation industry. And so that's that's sort of a legacy that he's left us. And then, then as far as the relevance of, of the themes Howard Hughes was not without his flaws, as we've talked about. He could be a jerk. And, of course, he had mental illness problems, uh, issues that he had to work through. And I look at that and I say, you know, there's two ways to look at it. One is, well, you know, maybe because he had so much to overcome, it made him, you know, that much better when he overcame it. But I also look at it and say, look, if Howard Hughes could could overcome all that and do what he did, surely I can because I 
thus far in my life have been very blessed in in terms of my health and my mental health and, and all these things. And and so he overcame so much to do uh, what he did, and I have so much less to overcome. Surely I can I can find my niche and, and contribute. I like that. I, I think that that is a way in which he's inspiring, both in the way he he strives after his dreams, but also in the things that he was able to accomplish despite his mental illness and despite his his paranoia and other things that afflicted him throughout his life. And, and despite the the thing that the, the accident that nearly killed him. Mm, yeah, we see for the cu- next couple of scenes after that accident happens, him first with a cane, then him without a cane. He's clearly trying to maybe keep up appearances in a certain way, but also trying mm-hmm. to just push himself harder. We do see a couple of times where he does literally have to find something to lead on or does have to lean back on that cane in order to to stand straight or to walk correctly. But we do see how he pushes himself to heal and literally overcome that part of his life too. So a lot of inspiration to be seen in Howard Hughes. And then, as I've mentioned, one of the things that that resonates with me is just how he was able to overcome the the corruptness of of the of Senator Owen and Juan Tripp, and whether it it was really the victory in real life that it was portrayed in the film, where you know people are cheering as he walks out. Like I just you know I I love it. I just I love to see <laughs> Owen, Owen Brewster's career going down in flames. It's it's just amazing. <laughs> it, it is a very satisfying scene. <laughs> Any other sort of final thoughts about the film, or does that just about wrap it up? Oh, one thing that I missed in my notes, if I can go back, um, when two things actually, when uh, in the making of Hell's Angels, I wrote down starting prop engines by hand on planes that big, big look so dangerous. Um, <laughs> that's how they started them back then, is to get the the motor cranking and to get things firing. And then uh, they made so Hell's Angels was nearing uh, four million dollars, way over budget which was the most expensive film made for a very long time, accounting for inflation. Uh-huh. In today's money, it would be $61,550,658. That's $4 million back Goodness then. gracious. So that, I mean, certainly there are movies made for more than that now. Rise of Skywalker was $275 million. So $61 million, though, is a pretty decent size budget, even still, depending on the movie. And so that was account, accounting for inflation and the difference in currencies of the 1930s uh, to today. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's pretty staggering. I'm sure that a lot of the footage they showed us was the actual footage of the film. And I, yes, mean, I, I was yes. very impressed by a lot of what we saw. That, that It was certainly an ambitious project. And I'd be curious to see some of that. Now, now the film industry they they glossed over this in in the film, uh, but the film industry is very different back then. And there were actually two people who lost their lives in the making of that film. That mm-hmm. it's very rare now. For I mean, obviously you can lose your life doing anything, and so I'm not saying that you know if it happens sometimes that's the way life is. But in general, back then the movie industry didn't care about the mm-hmm. little people. Well, I do think <laughs> it was mentioned in the film that, that was there it, were was two it, deaths. I, yeah, I I didn't remember that, but I did read more about it, and it was a very stressful and a dangerous place to work so so as much as i enjoy the craft of it it's like well we had a lot to learn about safety workplace safety back then well i'm excited to revisit the film more in the future and yes to look up the howard shore score separately uh, just to see what does stand out about it if anything but with that that's the end of the 81st episode of cinescope uh thanks again for joining me tj i was glad to talk about a new film for me. I, that's what I love most about the show is that it introduces me to new things. Yes, I love talking about things I already love, but I also like being introduced to new things to love. Well, when you're ready to get a new Star Trek movie that you haven't <laughs> seen before on, on your radar, let me know. 
And you've been very crafty in wanting to talk about every other one, which means that I have to watch two Star Trek movies in order to then talk about one of them with you. So yeah, you uh, can skip five <laughs> if you want to. I, I, won't, I mean, I enjoy five for what it is, but it's it is not a great film. Okay, n- noted. <laughs> <laughs> well, contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Uh, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. It helps with visibility for the show so that more people can discover it. And consider hitting that subscribe button too so you're always notified when a new episode comes out. I love how your episode outline still says rate and subscribe in iTunes. As if anybody still uses iTunes. Yeah, but I, I just sort of always mentally say the, the right thing. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, email feedback and ideas you might have for the show to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. Now, TJ, where can we find things from you and follow you online? Well, uh, moviebyte.com, as I mentioned earlier, is down. Normally, I would direct people there to our 150-episode archive. Uh, one day, I will get that site back up. I don't know what's wrong with it. Um, right now, uh, the only other place that you can find podcasts that I did myself is on nightowl.fm. That is still up. Uh, the podcasts are still there, and occasionally we even still post. It's been a couple years, but once in a while we'll get the bug and post an episode. <laughs> but uh, then you can follow me on Twitter if you want. Uh, it's just a stream of consciousness. It's TJ Draper Pro is where I'm at. Okay. Well, the best place to find me personally, separate from the podcast, is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And there's my other podcast, which is the Office Rewatch podcast titled An American Workplace. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And show notes and contact information that we just went over for this podcast can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And thanks again, TJ. It's always fun to talk with you. It was good to return to my podcasting roots talking about a movie with you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. And I just want to say your Twitter handle, every time I see it, always reminds me of the Muppets. (laughs) It kind of reminds me, which is very appropriate, I think, for for Chad. I I think so, too. I actually have a stuffed Kermit sitting on the ground next to me because my cat took it down from its perch. So Very nice. (laughs) That's all for this episode, everybody. Thank you for listening and have fun and celebrate movies. app called tv time yeah yeah i have it or i I did and then i had to reset my phone for reasons but i've used it reasons yes i love reasons yeah (laughs) um yeah so i got really frustrated not being able like because all my shows are on various networks uh in various places some of them are on hulu some of them are on the cw and the cw is the worst because it doesn't have any way for you to track what you're currently watching whether there's a new episode or not Mm -hmm. so this app kind of put everything in one place i'm like oh i have uh golly i have a lot of tv i need to watch right now but um (laughs) so anytime there's a new episode it shows up in my queue and then i can check it off when i get done but then they recently added a movies feature so i put a bunch of movies and i haven't seen that i want to so that's really nice see i I use letterboxd to keep track of my movie watching which is really nice it's it's a good log uh apparently they've got a watch list feature that i didn't know about and i haven't really used yet but i can start using that more i did when i when i first downloaded tv talk i took the time to go through and log all the things that i'd seen but then i didn't do a very good job of keeping up with it as i watched more yeah so maybe that's just something I need to spend more time doing. Uh, redownload that app and catch up on things. 
there is I don't use it because nobody I know else I know is on TV time, but there is a social except for one person. There is a social aspect to TV time. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you get back on TV time, you can see what I've watched and I can see what you've watched. Okay. Well. Anyway, maybe I'll look into that. Yeah. Uh, well, real quick before you talk a little bit about yourself, just to reintroduce yourself, are you excited about Picard? I am super excited about Picard. I'm a little nervous because, you know, stuff can not go the way you want it to or think it should, or maybe it's not going to be as good as, as you want it to be, but I am, like, all this material that's coming out about it, all the trailers, and I, I have been in a... I have two modes, right? I'm like completely avoid spoilers or give me everything. And I'm in this mode of give me everything. And so I don't care if it's a spoiler or not. I want it. And it looks fantastic. I don't know if you've watched any of the trailers. And earlier trailers, they had scenes with, with Data. I'll, you know, whether that's a spoiler or not, I don't know. But but they had scenes with Data. It looks like possibly dream sequences because Data, as we know, is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he didn't, you know, obviously Brent Spiner is getting older and he's an android and he's not supposed to age. But he looked... A little off, like they were trying to de-age him, but it wasn't good. And, you know, I figured, a lot of people were freaking out. I figured it was just early stages. They hadn't finished the stuff. But the latest trailer, he looks exactly like he did in Nemesis. So, yeah, I'm, I'm that's an aside. I'm super excited. <laughs> and Picard is, is my favorite captain in the Star Trek universe. Like, mm-hmm. he's just so good, and he does what's right no matter what. And so I'm just excited. Well, that's good to hear. I, I recently saw a trailer, and I was like, Oh, that's coming this soon? It's like a week away at this point. Less tomorrow. Than as, oh, as we're okay. recording, it's yeah. tomorrow, Chad. Yeah, so... I don't know when this episode releases, but this is Wednesday, <laughs> January 22nd. It releases tomorrow, January 23rd. Well, I'm excited for you. As everybody knows, and as you know, I am way behind in my Star Trek watching, and I, I, I probably figure that Picard is not the best place to just jump into the universe, so... No, I would not recommend <laughs> it. I, I can put together a list of Next Generation, even though I love the, the original series movies that you and I have talked about. Mm-hmm. The Next Generation as my Star Trek like that was being made and coming out when I grew up so um, and and it just sort of resonates with me and even now I'll watch an episode and it's just so you know with with exceptions of course as any you know long running series has it ran for seven seasons you'll find duds but in general you can sit down and watch a next generation episode and it's still so good especially once you get to the third season and beyond so well I'll get around to them eventually (laughs) it's on my list as (laughs) I've often said to Star Trek and other things you've mentioned it was fun, TJ. I will be sure to have you on in the near future. Yeah. Um, and if you ever have a, like a, a current release movie you want to talk about, let me know and we can we can squeeze you in for that too. Because I'm trying to do that more often. So. Uh, okay. Uh, the, if you haven't talked about Rise of Skywalker yet, we could probably talk about that. Uh, possibly. <laughs> not, you don't sound too excited. Uh, I, I liked Rise of Skywalker. I did not love Rise of Skywalker. Same, and same. I feel like it would well, unfairly turn to me complaining about it, even though okay. my overall thoughts are not 100% negative. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I had tears at various parts. Um, mm-hmm. uh, lots of tears at one point. <laughs> but yet I do feel like they could have done better. Yeah, I, I loved The Last Jedi. Like, Top two too. Star Wars and for that's, me. Um, that's what's so frustrating. And, and what I really find frustrating is people saying, oh, this undoes everything in Last Jedi. I didn't find that at all. I don't. There's one thing that happens in Rise of Skywalker that's almost like a little bit of a finger to Last Jedi, mm-hmm. but it's such a throwaway thing, and it makes no difference. And it's almost like we just did that because people want us to do that. Well, Everything else like flows out of the Last Jedi. Yeah. Well, my initial reaction when I walked out was that it was he he had done so much trying to fix quote fix the Last Jedi. I, I've sort of reneged on that a little bit because I've seen it a couple yeah. more times. But I don't, I don't understand that. But I still feel like the film was largely a reaction to the Last Jedi 
rather than a complete continuation of not a hundred percent. And I, like I said, I still liked a lot of rise of Skywalker. Um, but the first time I watched it, it, it like sat like a brick in my stomach for like a week because I was just so disappointed in what it could have been. But then the next two times I saw it, it it improved for me. It's still my least favorite of the trilogy though. It is my least favorite of the trilogy. No question. I I did like it the first time I saw it and I liked it better the second time, but it is still my least favorite of the trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, (laughs) I hate to say it because it's the same kind of the same way that the original trilogy worked out, but the middle, middle one is the best. Um, Now it's different where uh, I like return of the Jedi better than a new hope. And I like this one. I like the first one better than the third one. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but you know, it, I, yeah, I, I just, I think I feel like it's being unfairly maligned, um, but but I do agree that I don't think it, that JJ was a reaction to the Last Jedi. I think the hiring of him was, but I don't think mm-hmm. his story was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his story is pretty good. I, I have some quibbles with bringing back Palpatine, um, and and not only did they bring him back, I guess we're doing an impromptu whatever here a little bit. <laughs> uh, not only did they bring him back, but they asked us to just buy it in the opening crawl. Mm-hmm. That bugged me a yeah. little bit. And you have Poe, you have Poe's line. Somehow Palpatine returned. <laughs> Somehow, yeah, it's, it's like dark magic, da, 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 you know, or, or dark fort, whatever it was. You know, they just they said they gave like three or four possible options. Whatever, he's back, and it's like, yeah, but how? Why? And you know, I, I, it's, it's definitely a retrofit and it mostly works. It's just a little bit of a, oh, okay, we have to buy it initially and then it's fine. Um, and I'm not complaining about seeing Ian McDermott reprise his role because mm-hmm. he's, he's so delightful in that role. Mm-hmm. See, for me, I don't necessarily have a problem with Palpatine being back in general. Like if they had explained it better, I would have been happier with it. I definitely yeah. have the problem with Ray being a Palpatine and that handling of it. Um, but for yeah, me, see, I don't, for me, Palpatine was just always the central conflict of each trilogy. And so it made sense for me, for uh, to me, for him to be back for this one to sort of be like one final conclusion to the saga as a whole. Yeah, see, I don't have a problem with her being a Palpatine. And, and, and actually, if you want me to get theological, I think there's definitely some biblical symbolism here where she rejects the evil ways of, of her family and joins... Uh, 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 the good family, mm-hmm. which is, you know, as, as, you know, as a Christian, I believe that, that the Christians are adopted into the family of God who were of the evil one, right? Mm-hmm. So there's sort of, sort of some semblance there that I, uh, maybe that's why I didn't have as much of a problem mm-hmm. with it. Um, but yeah, I, I thought, and I thought it was good, especially at the end when she says, uh, I'm a, you know, Ray who, and she says, Ray Skywalker. And, and you've got, you know, um, the force ghosts of, of the Skywalkers there, uh, smiling. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I don't mind that so much. Um, I don't know. I, I have so many conflicting opinions. Like I liked this, but I didn't like this. And those somehow conflict with each other. But, uh, like I said, <laughs> overall, I did enjoy Rise of Skywalker. I liked it more with my subsequent two viewings. Um, I will own it. Like I, I'm excited to watch it again when I get the chance. Yeah. I just won't see it in theaters yeah, yeah. again. But um, there was one other thing I was going to say. I don't remember. Mm. But yeah, I I'm such a nerd that um my my biggest problem is the light speed skipping. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> so dumb, so dumb. That is not the way light speed works in in Star Wars and never has. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even make any sense because the the Falcon skips light speed skips somehow right into the middle of a city and. Not only does does it skip away, but then like the the Tie Fighters are still with them. Like what? How does that work? And also they didn't make any calculations. And how is it that they didn't fly it through a building? And none of this makes any sense. Like that that's the one that makes me, that's the, that's the thing that actually makes me angry in the Rise of Skywalker. Everything else, nothing else made me angry. I'm glad you still don't have any opinions on things, TJ. Nothing's <laughs> changed. 
Uh, you know me, opinionless. Yeah, that's that's how I've always known you to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to do you got to do put, put some sort of a tag on this show for. I will. I I, I had already quit like my personal recording, but I I still have call recorder going, so I'll have some yeah. sort of tag with probably some of that stuff we <laughs> talked about at the beginning too. Okay. Woohoo! It was a good time. Yeah, it was fun.